Hey there, history fans. And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the modern age. I'm Lauren. I'm Alyssa. And on today's episode, we're covering some ancient inventions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We went there. (laughs) We got some unusual ones for you, for sure. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you leave us a like, uh, rate, and review. (laughs) This isn't YouTube. (laughs) A a rate and review, (laughs) it helps people find us. You can also contact us through our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. You can also visit our Facebook and Instagram pages, which is historyexplainsall underscore podcast. Yes, and you can visit our Instagram page for our Today in History segment and to vote on upcoming episode topics, which is actually coming up this upcoming Monday. We're going to have a vote going on. Go vote. It will be the history of makeup during the Victorian era. We're, oh, I'm sorry. That's that's the next episode. Uh, the Cape Horn Shipwrecks versus the 27 uh, Club Mystery. Uh, mystery, I call it more of a 27 Club Curse. It's a it's curse mystery. That's what they call it. You want to call it whatever, I don't care. <laughs> but yeah, so we are sorry that we are missing the original scheduled topic with our guest Casey but that will be coming up some in June June soon we just had a scheduling conflict so we are we just have to rearrange some things yeah yes but it will it will come back we will make an announcement for when that's been officially finalized on on that so we do hope you enjoy ancient inventions though I'm ready to talk about some inventions what about you I got lined up. I'm already set to go. And which one do you have to start us off with? So we're going all the way back to 2300 BC. Long, 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 long time ago. So this is known as potentially the oldest dictionary ever recorded. And it is from ancient Mesopotamia. And it's different than what we might think of as a dictionary, where a dictionary is normally a defined word in a native language. This one, it's two more or less two different columns. One language is in cuneiform for the Sumerians, and one of them is in cuneiform for the Akkadian Empire, which I'm presuming they were neighbors. I've never heard of the Akkadians. I hadn't gotten that far in my research, but it's essentially more like the Rosetta Stone in terms of a dictionary rather than specifically a definition of. And it comes from about, like I said, 2300 BC. Cuneiform was actually around for about a thousand years prior to that and is known as the first uh, written language ever recorded. And it is called Uda Hubalu, which Hubalu is the Akkadian word. Uda is a Sumerian word. Both together mean interest bearing death don't know how that really translates to a dictionary but there's 24 tablets and inside of the tablets contains texts of around 9,700 words now there's not a whole lot of (laughs) there's not a whole lot of information about this in terms of who wrote it or when it was written specifically for where it's believed that it was actually written for for scholars in fact there's a historian named jack lynch 
And he actually his, wrote uh, that they were bureaucrats, not philosophers or poets, and yet they inadvertently left a picture of the universe as they understood it. And to give you kind of an idea of what's in these texts, I was able to find some information on some of the tablets and what information are on them. So there's tablet number four, which talks about naval vehicles. And I'm presuming that means boats and ships. Tablet number five is terrestrial vehicles, which I'm presuming are probably closer to wagons or maybe chariots. We're not talking cars. It's a bit early for that. Tablets 13 through 15 are systemic, systemic, systematic names of various domestic animals from the heiress, domestic animals, birds, terrestrial animals. Tablet 16 talks about various stones. Tablet 17 talks about various plants. Tablet 22 covers all the stars. And my favorite one is tablet 23, which is food and drink. And I wonder if it reads more like a menu rather than just a translation of food and drink yummy, yummy yummy oh oh before i before we pass it off over to lauren apparently october 16th is national dictionary day did not know that was a thing that's a random fact <laughs> i got oh, lots of random goodness. facts all right well i'm going back to ancient egypt which i did double check it was started around um, 2900 BCE. That's like the old, old kingdom. So it existed at the same time as the Sumerians just later, which is really fascinating. But I'm going to talk about two different things from the ancient Egypt that they gave us, which we still use both today. One is prosthetic limbs. Yes, prosthetic limbs. So the earliest known prosthetic limbs that actually functioned and helped the person who lost the limb function like a normal, like they did before losing the limb. Ignore the normal part. But the prosthetics from ancient Egypt were two artificial toes, separate, separate people, two separate artificial toes. And these, toe, these two toes were not decorative and they were built for function. One of them was actually a big toe and it supposedly helped carry some of the body weight and help the person push forward because we use our toes to push us forward when we're walking. Well, this toe functioned and did that. From 1800, from there, from 1800, from there, uh, nothing happened with prosthetic limbs until the late 1400s. So it just sat for, you know, 600 to 1,000 years untouched we did not propel forward with prosthetics until later there was a man named Gotts von Berlichingen and he received a prosthetic arm and hand with this prosthetic limb he was able to continue to function as a knight which is what he was before he lost whichever arm it was he lost and his arm was actually specifically made for him and it allowed him to hold on to a shield or work the reins of a horse. So he was still able to continue to function as a knight, soldier, whatever you want to call him. And then from the 1400s, again, prosthetic limbs remained untouched until the American Civil War. You know, just, just another couple hundred years there, you know, just, just sitting. Due to the American Civil War, where brother was fighting brother, there was an extremely high number of casualties. And 
loss of limb, lots of losses of limbs, sometimes double limbs, like you lost both your arms or both your legs or something like that. And well, these men needed to be able to function if they were to survive after the war. So what they did was they had to make these limbs useful that they made for everyday things. They had to make prosthetics that actually functioned as hands so that they could pick up objects, open doors, walk from point A to point B. And ever since the American Civil War, we've just come to what we are now, which is kind of cool, actually. We have robotic arms now. I mean, hey, it's pretty awesome. And then I'm also going to talk about the ancient Egyptians calendar. Yes, they had a calendar. Pretty cool. So before, long before we came up with one, and by we, I mean the Western civilization, uh, the one that we use today, the ancient Egyptians also had a calendar system. And they technically had two versions of their calendar. They had a lunar calendar for religious rituals and a solar calendar for everyday functions. So, Here's the fun thing. The solar calendar did have 365 days a year, similar to the one that we use. We use 365 days in a year. Hmm. Wonder uh, where we uh, got that from. Hmm. Fascinating. And then things start to veer differently. Well, we have four seasons, like winter, spring, summer, and fall. They had three seasons. I was thinking hot, hot and hotter. It's mostly California. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, they everything kind of was based on the Nile. So I'll get into that. Uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, four seasons, and there—I mean, there were three seasons instead of four seasons, and each season contained four months. There were ten days in a week and three weeks in a month. Two days out of the ten. Uh, we're, we're in comparison or parallel a version of our weekend. They had two days out of 10 where they weren't supposed to work. So the seasons were known as Akhet, and it was when the Nile was flooding. Season two was Proyet, which is when you're gathering and growing all your stuff. And then there was Shomu, and it was the time that the Nile waters began to recede. So going back to the months and the days, the days were actually called decons. And with 10 days in a week, that meant that there were 360 days in a calendar year. Well, what about those extra five days at the end? Because they did have a 365-day calendar. Well, at the end, they had this extra month, and it was literally just the five days long. And they would use these five days to celebrate the birthday of the god. Yes, you celebrated the gods in these five days and you did not work, don't work. It's a high holy day. So five days out of the year, obligated for no one to work. In the USA, for example, the way we write our dates is we do month, day, and year. May 18th, 2021. Well, in ancient Egypt, they would write the month that was within the season. Then they would write the name of the season, whether it be Akhet, Proyet, or Shamu. Then they would write the year and the pharaoh who was ruling at the time. 
What's interesting is that if a ruler died and a new ruler ascended to the throne of Egypt, a year would supposedly start over. I couldn't really find much on how that really worked with the seasons. Not really understanding how that worked, but I couldn't find much on it either. So I was just kept thinking about the, um, the weeks were 10 days long and you say they're called decas? Decons. Decons. I'm wondering if that's where the Latin deca for 10 comes from. Probably. Oh, Sirius. The star Sirius was extremely important. They had to see the star Sirius and they actually used the stars and the events, the sightseeing of specific stars, like when Sirius was at specific, when you could see Sirius, the star Sirius at specific times and specific day of the specific month. And that's how they actually would mark their calendars. They used Sirius. So Sirius, being able to see Sirius on a specific time, I think it was night, like sunset, that's it. Sunset on this specific time, it would mark the rise of the Nile flooding. So you would know the Nile would start flooding soon if you saw Sirius at sunset on whatever day, in whatever, I think it was uh, in Akhet, at the end of Akhet and beginning of um, Troyet. And uh, side note, the Great Pyramid of Giza was apparently built to align with the Sirius star. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Mine pyramids are like that as well, too. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me in any bit. It just, I think it's really neat that they did it and they, they used specific stars and that we can tell which star they were using because I guarantee they didn't call the Sirius star Sirius. No, but I'm also pretty sure those stars are probably still around, too. Where to next? Going out of your favorite place into my favorite place. Ooh. Ancient Greece. Oh, well, ancient Rome and Greece. Your favorite place was Italy. Uh, my favorite historical place is Italy. It's still my second favorite country. Oh, Greece is your first favorite country. Okay. No, Australia. Oh, you just said your favorite place. You're confusing my me. My favorite ancient place. I'm sorry. I meant Greek and Rome. Ancient place. Sorry classicist <laughs> my minor was in the classics department yeah and i took ancient greek as a language although it isn't counted as a language credit i know i was upset too i was like oh cool language credit they go no this isn't actually part of the language department well what are we learning about from greece what came from greece so many I got, things i got two things from greece one of them well they're both really fascinating one of them is kind of a mystery one of them one of them is an ancient vending machine you heard me right, though. Ancient Greek vending machine. Although this one's a bit different than what you might think. This did not dispense candy and soda. Well, darn it. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> I don't think they had candy and soda back then. Well, I mean, sweets maybe, but not candy like we know it today. But you could dispense wine. That was the soda of the ancient times. Because you didn't drink the nasty water. No, no. That's why you drink wine and wine is delicious. So what is known as the first ever vending machine was written by a name, written, invented by a man named Hero of Alexandria, also known as Heron. Because if you're looking in the ancient Greek text, his name was actually Heron, H-E-R-O-N. But it somehow got shortened and or Latinized to Hero. So you'll see both of them. It's the same person. He was a scientist, an inventor, and a mathematician who was born in Alexandria, Egypt in around possibly 10 AD. 
And the first ever mention of this invention itself was actually in a book that he wrote of his inventions called Pneumatics, which Pneumatics itself is the science of gases and their characteristics at different temperatures. He was, he more or less, you could consider him the da Vinci of ancient Egypt and, or ancient Greek at, at this time. Dude was ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt. Well, he lived in Alexandria, Egypt, but ancient Greece. Uh, he's also known for a few other inven- his inventions, one of them being the first pneumatic steam-powered system. This one's really cool. You'll like this. So this is actually, most of his inventions were typically used in temples. This pneumatic power system that he created actually was a way for the, the, the altar, not the altar, the temple doors to open. So what the priests would do, he would set it up to have the altars attached to the temple doors. And when the priests would come and set fire to the altars to start the offerings for the gods, at that point, the fire and the altar would make the doors open on the temple. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially the first automatic door too, but I'm not talking about that one today. He also is known for what's called Huron's formula, which is a calculation used to create uh, to determine the area inside of a triangle by using the three different legs of the triangle. And he's also one of the first inventors of an early wind wheel, which I'm presuming is something something similar to a turbine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Jude was smart. <laughs> Jude was very smart. <laughs> so this first vending machine quote unquote was not only oddly shaped like an urn but in terms of an urn not so much for ashes but more like an urn as in terms of a a container for holding something and the cool thing about this to me is it was coin operated which makes a lot more sense when you think about the way that the system actually operated and i'll get to that in just a minute as we said today's vending machines typically give out candy and soda what do you think his vending machine dispersed. Mind you, keep in mind, these were used in temples, typically. Version of creepy holy water. You sound so enthusiastic. Creepy holy water. It's creepy and really freaking weird. It's water! Yes, it was holy water. I just don't see how it's creepy. Oh my gosh. It's more creepy that we make it holy. It's already holy! Whether you you believe in God or gods, one of the gods already created it. I mean, Poseidon was the god of the freaking sea. How is the water unholy then? Good point. Don't know. Somebody does know. Please explain this to me. (laughs) Yes, it just been stolen water. And we have some schematics for you that uh, will be part of our source notes so you can get more of an idea of what it looked like because it's pretty kind of cool. And this wasn't just used in Greek temples and Alexandria is also used in Roman and Egyptian temples as well, too. And to a certain degree, it was a way for the temples to make money without having the priests to go and literally take the, the plates and collect money. It was also a way for... It's a holy water dispensing unit, not unlike a hand sanitizer automatic dispensing unit. So you would have a container filled inside this urn full of holy water that people would pay money for. And instead of the priest literally blessing the water every single time he needs to use it, the whole container is already blessed. So it's already set to go. So it's kind of right by once you go into the temple, typically it was sitting there, you toss your coin into it and it would set it off so that it would literally dispense a a specified amount of holy water into your hands for you to 
use on your way inside the temple. But speaking of wine, it wasn't uncommon for the Romans to use them, use these ancient vending machines at their parties to instead of dispersing holy water, you get to drink wine out of it. So it's essentially a coin operated keg or oak barrel. I wouldn't call it keg, keg is for beer. Yeah. I mean, it's the Romans, so they take something and make it all the more crazy, sometimes more fun. Not a, a something that they were, you know, it's the Romans. The Romans were crazy themselves. I mean, Logopolis. Logopolis was pretty darn crazy. Caligula, Nero. We can keep going with the names of Roman emperors no, that lasted. Nero, Nero. I, we will keep going, and I'm just going to put this point on there. I don't. Uh, I I think part of Nero is really just people ragging on him. I don't think it was all as bad as they think it is. Caligula, yes, but also he was liked before he went and had his. Uh, he got sick too, and then he was kind of crazy after that. So a side note on vending machines. Again, this is, so Huron was born in around 10 AD. Uh, I don't have a specific date as to when this vending machine was created, but I would probably put it in and around maybe 30 or so AD. So he's about 20, maybe a little before, a little after, but for somebody who's probably been tinkering with stuff most of his life, that sounds like a good year to start. The next available vending machine as we know them wasn't until 1615 and it was a portable inventing portable vending machine invented in the UK and what do you think that one dispersed or dispensed it's uh, England in the 1600s there's one major commodity is it I was gonna say is it also known as tobacco yeah it's either sugar or tobacco and you can't really put sugar in a vending machine <laughs> ew no ew it wouldn't work. Of course it wouldn't. It would just be raw but sugar. tobacco, I can definitely see. Mm-hmm. Well, sugar, you could technically box it up and put it in a vending machine just like you did tobacco, but I don't see why you anyone would want to buy it that way. I, I don't can see tobacco, cigars in a vending machine, but... Up, up until the 90s, at least in America, vending machines as we know them today did dispense cigarette packages, but I don't think that the vending machine that was a portable vending machine in 1615 was in any way similar to a cigarette vending machine in the 80s probably not so uh, i'll go into the history of vending machines in just another second but here's how huron's vending machine actually worked again we'll have schematics and the source notes so a coin was entered into a slot keep in mind this is urn shaped so it's a little narrower on the bottom but it's got a flat bottom with a very narrow base and then widening widening up to the top and then in kind of a narrow top there's a coin size hole at the top you drop it in the coin would hit a pan and attached to the pan was a lever and so as the coin hit the pan it would then activate the lever and then when the lever moved it opened a valve and when the valve opened up water came out of the machine much like a faucet and then as the coin made its way, because of the, it, it, this all went by weights, which makes a lot more sense when you think about it. And as the, the pan itself moved, the coin would drop out of it, closing the valve, releasing the lever, and then the coin would fall to the bottom of the urn. And so every now and then, depending on how big it was, most of these weren't very huge, but depending on how big this contraption would have been, the priest would 
fill up a container with holy water, place it inside the urn, and then every now and then you would remove the water and add new holy water. And at the end of the day, then you'd take all the coins out and use them towards temple funds. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense too. It's a way of generating money for the temples and it's ancient Rome, Greece, and Egypt, all in Alexandria, Egypt, which was one of the major hubs of all three civilizations. You're going to have a ton of temples. So you made a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just look at how many temples Egypt had alone. We're yeah. just talking about one civilization and then talk about all the gods the Greeks had and then the Romans who yeah. basically copied the Greeks and just gave them new names. But think of all the temples and Alexandria alone between the three. You could, it, It's like a Starbucks, except better. Temple overload. <laughs> Temple overload. Yes, that, that just thinking about it like makes my brain want to go. <laughs> Before I end, a little more history on the vending machines. Vending machines as we know it, and in fact, the first commercial vending machine was also created in the UK in the 1880s. And most of them were actually coin operated until about the eight, nine, until about the 1980s into the 1990s before when they came became electronic. And in fact, this one's really cool. Unfortunately, it's not around anymore, but I'd like to learn a lot more about this. In Philadelphia, which is in Pennsylvania, for those who aren't uh, from the U.S., there was a coin operated restaurant that operated from 1902 to 1962 called Horn and Hardowich. What? Apparently it was really popular, but yeah, coin operated restaurant. No, what's weird is what they've got in Italy. And I think I sent you a picture of this. Italy has pizza vending machines. I like yeah. it, but I don't like it. I don't know how to feel about that one. If anyone's ever used a pizza vending machine, let us know. Yeah. Was it tasty? I don't know if it's any good because it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it would be. It's like, you have to keep the pizza hot, but it's not going to be fresh when you order it kind of thing. Or do like, how do they do that? That's just weird. I don't know. I saw a picture of it when I was doing my research and going, uh, I want to try it, but I don't know if it's any good. If you tried it, let us know. We want to know. Speaking of things we don't know, my next one, we don't really know much about at all, but I've been fascinated by it for, I don't even know how long. This is called the Antikytherian Mechanism or Antikytherian Clock. And it was found off the coast of the island of Antikythera in Greece. And this one is just strange. So it's believed that this was created about 100 BC, uh, but sunk in a storm around the first century BC off of Antikythera during shipwreck and was found in around 1900, 1901 off the island uh, by sponge divers. And they were able to locate 82 pieces of this, but it's believed by scientists that these 82 pieces only make up about a third of the entire piece. And we've not really been able to find any additional pieces since. Based off of the surviving pieces, there are wood, there are pieces of wood on the fragments, which leads the scientists to believe that this mechanism was originally housed in a wooden case and i don't mean a wooden case like a box more like a wooden case 
like a clock because this is what they think it is. So I'm thinking more like a cuckoo clock where the outer casing is wood and the inside's all gears. And I'll get into why cuckoo clock would make a little more sense in just a minute. The inside and most of the items that were found are made of bronze. So the inside of it is bronze. The outside of it is wood. And some of these bronze sheetings as part of the, the pieces are actually ha actually have Greek inscriptions on them. So we can read them, or at least most of it, which, what hasn't been already corroded and understand what some of this was meant to do. And it's, I believe that it's possibly a mechanism that was hand cranked, but we haven't been able to find that hand crank and we're not really quite, we're not hundred percent sure if that's really how it was. There is a summary of this clock and it's really the best summary I could, I, I couldn't come up with a better one. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it for you just to give you an idea of what people since 1900 have thought what this does based off of x-rays and various evidence and in research into this. So it says, like a clock, the case would have had a large circular face with rotating hands. There was a knob or handle on the side for winding the mechanism forward or backwards. And as the knob turned, trains of interlocking gear wheels drove at least seven hands at various speeds. Instead of hours and minutes, the hands displayed celestial time, one hand for the sun, one hand for the moon, and one for each of the five planets visible to the naked eye. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. A rotating black and silver ball showed the phases of the moon. Inscriptions explained which stars rose and set on any particular date. There were also two dial systems on the back of the case, each with a pin that followed its own spiral groove like a needle on the record player. One of these dials was a calendar. The other one showed timing of lunar and solar eclipses. So this thing is complicated. That's a lot to take in. Uh huh. I don't even think I caught all of that. Right, right. Too much, too much. <laughs> I, there's a reason <laughs> it was a clock. This thing is complicated. There's a lot of small pieces to it. In fact, some people even say it was the first analog computer because it could tell you dates way ahead of time. Although I think that's more like a calculator than a computer. So as we said, there are two different dials. One's a calendar, one... Uh, for dates, and one is a calendar of lunar and solar eclipses, the large upper dial has five spiral slots in it and shows 235 lunations, or what's known as the metonic cycle, which is about 19 years long. And the large lower dial has four spirals and runs on the Saros cycle, which is 18.2 years long. So essentially, this could tell you the time and date and position of the planets and maybe the moon and sun as well up to 19 years at a time brain explosion what that's just um, no it's just amazing well the mayan calendar as we know it had something similar in or at least the aztec calendar oh gee i'm gonna get myself confused i'll go with mayan calendar um that one can predict dates in the mayan calendar system up to hundreds of years uh, ahead of its time, but it's not a, well, they were really good with astronomy, but that one was a stone inscription and written down more or less. This was a moving mechanical piece that did this. And the pieces 
have small triangular uh, teeth on them, not unlike modern grooves and clock gears. And that's not something that we're aware of that ancient Greece was able to make things that small. They, we know about the, the lunar and solar cycles because there were x-rays of this in the 1970s and 1990s, which show us that there may have been uh, a replication of motions in the sky, particularly around the moon and the sun. So in 2006, Mike Edmonds of Cardiff University, Hello Wales, published CT scans of the fragments, which actually revealed more details of the inner workings as well as inscriptions, which they determined was, were in ancient Greek. And then Alexander Jones, who's a historian at the Study of Ancient World in New York, actually thinks that the inscriptions specifically state that this quote unquote clock had originally colored balls on it. So the different different colors for the planets and different colors for the moon and the sun. We know that there was a silver and or black ball for the moon. It's believed that there was a gold ball for the sun, maybe a red ball for Mars. We don't know specifically, but that's a pretty good guess. And then, as I said, we don't know the exact origins of it, but Paul Iverson, who's a classicist at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, actually thinks that the calendar months are named for those uh, in Corinth and the colonies of Corinth, which are in Northwest Greece. There's a dial in this that they've, or at least that I believe Paul Iverson has been able to determine, displays timing of athletic festivals, which would also include the Olympics. And on one of the lists on these dials and the inscriptions, the list Na, N-A-A, which is a festival held in Northwest Greece. There's also one for a festival called Helea which is actually in the south of Greece near Rhodes. And due to, now in one of Cicero's writings, he mentions an artist called, I'm never gonna get this one right, Posidonius. It's not how I keep wanting to pronounce it. I see it and I wanna go Poseidon, but that's not right. Posidonius, who was actually an inventor and creator <laughs> from Rhodes. It looks like it looks like Poseidon with an I-U-S at the end and I keep like, it's like dyslexia, I swear. Anyway, he, Cicero writes of Posidonius, who actually created what is possibly a similar model to the Antikythera clock, but that was just specifically of the planets. This is why it's also posited that Posidonius made the Antikythera clock, and originally it came from Rhodes and on, was on its way north when it got lost in the shipwreck. There are other scholars that even think it may have been invented by Archimedes, Hipparchus, and other similar inventors of the time. James Evans, who's a historian of astronomy at the University of Puget Sound in Washington State, actually thinks it may even have Babylonian origins to it as well, too, given some of the astronomy history behind all this. And to give a brief update, as of March 2021, in a recent article from Smithsonian Magazine, there was a group of researchers from the University College London that proposed a new step in trying to understand the Antikythera mechanism. And they want to create a theoretical model for how the mechanism might have actually worked. And the magazine article states that they have created a 3D computer model of the clock's designs using the cycles from Babylonian astronomy, math from Plato's Academy and ancient Greek, 
ancient Greek astronomical theories and also using work of a uh, previously made replica by Michael Wright, who was the former curator at the Science Museum in London. They put these all together, given the pieces and the x-rays and all the information they have on the Antikythera mechanism, plugged it into the computer and were able to create a, th a 3D model that seems like it may actually work. So at this time, they are trying to actually create a 3D version in real life of the, their 3D computer model to see if it will actually work. And one of the team members actually has a quote, which I absolutely love, but this is because I'm also a big Doctor Who fan. So Adam Wojcik, who is a, a member of this team from the University College London, uh, one of his quotes in the article is, it's a bit like having a TARDIS appear in the Stone Age. Which makes a lot of sense. It's like, oh, this is really cool. I wonder what this does. I have no idea what this does. It's not so much of like, what does this button do? And then you have Dexter going, Dee Dee, no. <laughs> Dexter's lab, sorry. And that would be our Antikythera mechanism slash clock slash possible analog computer slash calendar slash I don't know what. But it's really fascinating. It's like an all-in-one kind of tool leave it to the ancient Greeks to come up with something like that for sure. Time to move east. Mm, how far east? All the way to China. Ooh, that's, a good, that's pretty far east. So now imagine yourself in ancient China around 32 CE. Common era, by the way. This is a time when earthquakes were are a thing in China. They still are. But earthquakes would happen <laughs> and nobody knew what to do. Nobody knew when an earthquake was going to hit. There wasn't the technology that we have today. Well, a man named Zhang Heng, who was an astronomer, came up with a way to detect the earthquake. Mm. Ready to hear what it is? Yeah, because I'm kind of called a, called a seismometer. Zhang Heng was from the Nanyang, Hen, was from Nanyang in the Henan province. I think that's right. And he specialized in astronomy and mathematics. During this, this time, earthquakes were seen as an unlucky sign and that somebody made the gods mad. Because, you know, everything was based on if the gods were happy or not. You know, that balance of yin and yang. So the seismometer was useful in that it actually allowed the emperor to know when and where to send aid for the people impacted by the earthquake. Were, were people impacted the most in the north, the south, the northeast, the southeast, southwest, northwest? Who knows? So what this seismometer was is it was a bronze, another kind of urn shape. Yeah. Bronze urn. And it had eight dragons that were going around this, going around it, but they were all pointing in specific directions north south east west east west north northeast northwest that kind of thing all around and the tail of the dragon was at the top with the mouth of the dragon at the bottom and the mouth of the dragon had a little ball in it and if it were wherever the direction that the earthquake was, was hitting the ball from the mouth of the dragon would fall because it would feel the the vibrations and it would fall into the mouth of a toad that was sitting at the bottom with its mouth wide open 
facing up towards the dragon. I will, it, it will, it will, there will be a link in the source notes to see a reproduction of it. It looks really cool. Oh, I bet it does. It's just the description of dragons with balls in their mouths, dropping it into a toad. Into a toad's mouth. Into a toad's mouth. An unusual concept, That's for sure. Really, really wide. Well, well, they supposedly the use of dragons and toads actually had to do with the yin and the yang. Mm. Dragons portrayed the yin and toads the yang. So dragons female and toads are male in terms of yeah. uh, yin yang energy and all that. Okay. Unfortunately, the original was lost to time and it's never been found. What we have today are replicas and documentation of it because Zhang Heng, the idea was not widely originally accepted. So Zhang Heng had some trouble with it until it actually was shown into function. So there's written records and of what it was and all that stuff, but no actual original seismometer around that we have found. And when was the next seismometer created? I have no idea. I didn't look. <laughs> oh, I thought you did. As an original Californian, I don't care. <laughs> Still prefer earthquakes to hurricanes. I don't miss them at all. I absolutely hated living through hurricanes when I lived on the East Coast. I hated them. I'd rather deal with an earthquake any day. Yep. I also grew up with earthquakes. I lived in LA growing up, right on the fault line. I mean, you get so used to it around here. We had an earthquake. I mean, it was leftover shock from an earthquake, but it was maybe like a three, three and a half, maybe it was like four o'clock in the morning about a couple months ago. I wake up and I'm like, who's messing about upstairs? Oh, it's just an earthquake. <laughs> um, I'll just go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're just like me yeah pretty much just like what the oh all right i even slept through some sure i've been asked remember i think you asked me i think it was during that one i think four four months ago or a few months before that there was like another one where we got like some aftershocks or something and you asked me you're like did you feel the earthquake and i'm like no what, what earthquake yeah. oh it happened at like three in the morning i was asleep i didn't feel nothing <laughs> But we do hope that you enjoyed this lovely episode. And that'll do for this episode of the History Explains It All podcast. And we hope to, to see you next week as we continue to trek through history. Next week's weird history is certainly <laughs> a riot. <laughs> <laughs> and not in a good way. Oh, gosh. Uh, one more time on the poll. It's going out when? uh monday monday the 17th 17th and will last until it'll last until uh thursday the 20th so, so. yes all right and then one more time it's on cape horn shipwrecks versus the 27 club curse is correct and again, yes. I apologize for not having part two of our Elizabethan, but hopefully we'll have that back to you guys 
soon. We will give you updates as we go along on that. If you did like this ancient inventions one and there's some other inventions you want to hear us talk about, let us know. Facebook, Instagram, email us. Let us know anything you guys want us to talk about. We want to hear from you guys. Yeah, we can start a couple of series if you want. Get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. Absolutely. And I guess mm. on that, we will sign off for today. We'll see you next Thursday for some more history. Bye. Bye.